You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, it seems like brands attach their names to anything these days. But a couple decades ago, Taco Bell confused the nation and angered many when the company announced it had purchased the Liberty Bell. So what actually happened? Come on down! You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And what's that? You already know all the prices? The story of the man who broke America's favorite game show. Reality shows can teach us a lot about a society. So when Scottish TV aired a reality show meant to showcase a rebuild of society from the ground up, what could go wrong? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, in your long history of life of pulling pranks on other people, what would you say is the greatest prank that you've ever pulled? Uh, I love pranks. And here's the key to a good prank. You can't ruin someone's life with it because then it crosses over into cruel. So there's a fine line with pranks. Okay, you got to keep that in mind when you're coming up with something. I, I think my favorite one was an April Fool's Day when I was in college. I created a fake email address that looked like it was coming from Best Buy. I sent it out to a bunch of people, including myself, and then I contacted those people and said, hey, I signed us up for this thing at Best Buy. I think we all won. Did you get an email from Best Buy Prize iPad at gmail.com or whatever? And, <laughs> and most people thought, okay, it's April Fool's, Dave's lying. One person, though, responded and said, yeah, I did. Do you think it's legit? And I said, it's 100% legit. Let's do it. Because what I had said in the prank, hey, you have been selected to win an iPad. All you have to do to get this iPad is write a two-page essay about why you deserve it. So this person then spent their evening writing a two-page essay about why they deserve this and put a lot of thought into it. Uh, my uncle, Mike, he um, loved like pulling pranks on people. And um, he recently passed away and we were at his funeral. And um, the guy who's his best friend was telling this story about one of this uh, thing he used to do. Uh, when he was at work, there was this guy that worked there who was older and he was like the supervisor and he was like this real like buttoned up kind of like very serious guy. And uh, Mike would go into the lunchroom just randomly like once or twice a week and just take a huge bite out of his sandwich. And he did it for like (laughs) five years. Okay. Like literally five years. And it drove the guy insane. Like he was ready to kill people. He was ready to fire. (laughs) He was like, if I ever catch who's taking bites of my sandwich, I will fire you on the spot. Like he was so mad. Well, then this guy goes to retire. They're having this huge retirement party for him. And Mike gets up on the stage and uh, basically like kind of gives this long speech about, you know, we're so like thankful for years of service. We love your friendship, all the great memories we've had. And then basically confess to like taking a bite out of a sandwich every day for, you know, five plus years or whatever, which is just like such a great prank. That's incredible. <laughs> what commitment. <laughs> hey, that, he was a man that would commit to the bit. That's, that's for sure. 
Well, Dave, for the segment here, we have to go back to the year 1996. The day is April 1st, and that should sort of tip you off where we're headed with this. And on this day, several angry phone calls started coming in to the National Park Service, to the headquarters of Taco Bell as well. Uh, In response to the news of the day, those phoning in were reacting to a front page news story in the Philadelphia Inquirer, a full page statement from Taco Bell that read as follows. In an effort to help the national debt, Taco Bell is pleased to announce that we have agreed to purchase the Liberty Bell, one of our country's most historic treasures. It will now be called the Taco Liberty Bell and will still be accessible to the American public for viewing. While some may find this controversial, we hope our move will prompt other corporations to take similar action to do their part to reduce the country's debt. Now, of course, Dave, this was a joke. And although a lot of people realized this, a lot of other people did not. And the situation that was created here turned into one of the most bizarre, but also most effective marketing stunts of the past few decades. This stunt came about because of a marketing firm called Payne PR, which had Taco Bell as a client. Despite the fact that the fast food brand had grown pretty substantially since its founding in 1962, their promotionals were starting to run thin. That was when the idea was initially proposed to pull off the April Fool's Day prank, an insinuation that Taco Bell was purchasing the Liberty Bell to sort of highlight the word bell in the brand name for consumers. This idea sort of popped at the right time here too, Dave. This was a time in which corporations were attaching to all kinds of branding opportunities, like renaming sports stadiums, for example. Taco Bell ran the ad nationally as well in the New York Times, USA Today, and several major news outlets. And while the ad certainly did get people talking, most of the talking was staunchly negative. One operator who worked for Taco Bell at the time estimates that 75% of the calls the company received that day were more of the irate nature. Not only this, but angry callers flooded the phone lines of the National Park Service, and even a couple aides to senators reached out. to confirm if the story was real or not. You have to remember too, Dave, that this was in an age before social media and instant news. And so it was much easier to take claims like this just at face value. And while many picked up the phone to express anger, David Payne, the owner of the PR firm behind the stunt, expressed that the hoax worked exactly as they intended. In 2021, Payne told the Inquirer, it hit at just the right moment of time in our country's history. Companies were beginning to sponsor things. At the time, it was just becoming controversial. And so the idea that Taco Bell could, in effect, purchase or sponsor the Liberty Bell, well, it seemed like a really creative and goofy idea that would appeal to their young audience. Be a little anti-establishment, which is exactly what we were going for in terms of the Taco Bell brand. So Dave, on that April 1st, the company released a statement by noon assuring the panicked public that they were in fact just joking. And even the spokesman for the White House at the time, Mike McCurry, made a joke saying that the car maker Lincoln would be sponsoring the Lincoln Memorial and rename it the Lincoln Mercury Memorial. Some citizens, though, Dave, did take issue with the fact that Taco Bell used such an iconic piece of history in a marketing stunt, and others pointed out that the believable nature of the stunt shows just how deeply commercialized our country and society had become. Taco Bell and all of this, though, well, they got exactly what they wanted. It is believed that the $300,000 they spent in advertising expenses created $25 million in publicity. In the next year, the company would go on to adopt their famous Yokiero Taco Bell slogan spoken by the famous Chihuahua in their TV ads, which would be an incredibly successful campaign. 
and the bizarre marketing stunts would continue, such as in 2001, when the company placed a giant bullseye in the South Pacific to try to catch some debris from a Russian space station as it was coming to Earth. And although the stunt probably couldn't work the same way today, it is important to note that Taco Bell did donate $50,000 toward preservation efforts of the Liberty Bell after it was suggested that if you're going to exploit it, you should at least give something back. You know what my favorite thing is at Taco Bell? Cinetwists. <laughs> do they even still make those anymore? They, they do still make them, but here's the thing. They don't taste like anything. They're air. Yeah. So I don't know really why I like them. Every time I get them, I think this is incredible. Jay, what is your relationship opinion about the show The Price is Right? Well, I like it, but I am pretty terrible at it. But we all can't be good at everything, and you are good at Jeopardy. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of my wheelhouse. You know, if I get outside of that, though, it's it's pretty rough. But Jay, for me, and man, this, this sounds so dumb and I sound so old, but I love The Price is Right. At least I really used to love it. I like it now. I used to really love it. I I was born in the late 1980s, making me a child of the 90s. And so all through school, especially elementary and junior high, The Price is Right was my sick show. Sick and staying home from school? Yeah, baby. 11 a.m. cannot come soon enough. I think I even considered spaying or neutering my pets just because the legendary host Bob Barker told me to do so at the end of each episode. Jay, The Price is Right, though, is still around today and still very popular. While original host Bob Barker has sailed off into the sunset, it's now comedian Drew Carey flying the plane. If you're unfamiliar with The Price is Right, first of all, you are very sheltered and you're insane. But second of all, I'll quickly explain it to you. While briefly appearing on cable television in 1956, the version of The Price is Right we know and love today started in 1972 and hasn't ever left, effectively making it the longest-running game show in U.S. history. Every weekday at 11 a.m. Eastern, audience members pray that they'll hear their name tied to the famous catchphrase, Come on down! as they compete with other contestants in pricing games. Games like Guessing the Price of Groceries, Plinko, and Higher or Lower follow, with winners eventually earning the right to spin the wheel, with the two folks landing on the closest number to $1 on the wheel, advancing to the finale. Jay, the showcase showdown, the ultimate pricing game with many big ticket items like cars, trips, and the occasional treadmill tied into it. Jay, it's all pretty straightforward, and people love the show. But I would argue that no one loves the show more than the man who broke the show. No one loves The Price is Right more than Theodore Ted Slauson. Ted Slauson was an elementary school math teacher by day, but by night, he was the ultimate fanboy of The Price is Right. Fascinated with the show since its inception in the 1970s, Slauson didn't just study the prizes and the prices that went along with them. It became his obsession. Slauson watched, documented, and memorized every prize on The Price is Right. Like, we're talking thousands of items. Everything from Flintstone vitamins to pearl necklaces. When he turned 18, Slauson started traveling to the show, hoping to get a chance to possibly compete. Tickets for The Price is Right are free, but they come on a first-come, first-served basis. So Slauson would stand in line all day just for the chance to be in the audience. 
And when I say this guy knew his prices, Jay, he knew his prices. Okay, like he had developed computerized memorization games. He even knew the price of the cars with add-ons. <laughs> Part of the vibe on the prices, right, is audience participation. Like the item will be a washing machine and the audience will yell out guesses to the contestants. Jay Slauson was one of those people, except when he yelled out the answers, they were 100% correct. While some contestants would ignore him, some would take his advice, helping them win big prizes and even causing Bob Barker during his hosting run to acknowledge Slauson in the audience for his accuracy in multiple episodes. And Jay, for 30-plus shows, it went like this for Slauson. It all changed, though, in 2008. On that infamous day, Slauson was standing in line all day to get in the audience, like he always did, and struck up a conversation with a couple of strangers, a man named Terry Neese and his wife. Slauson, as he had done many times before, told them about his memorization work and spent hours wowing the couple with his knowledge. Well, as fate would have it, Jay, just a few hours later, Terry Neese heard his name called out to come on down and become a contestant on The Price is Right. But Neese fully leaned in to the superpower that was Ted Slauson, using Ted's knowledge to make it all the way to the showcase showdown. Once in the showdown, Slauson says in the documentary about this situation, Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much, that he knew the price of the prize package in the showcase showdown was exactly (laughs) $23,743. Insane. And while he told Nisa's wife this, he didn't want to yell it out. He thought that maybe this was actually going just a little too far. Maybe he shouldn't abuse the show this way and use his skills in this way. He suggested to Nisa's wife just yelling out something kind of close, just land in the ballpark. But you know who didn't think it was too far, Jay? Terry Nisa's wife. Of course not. She yelled out the exact (laughs) number to Terry, $23,743, allowing him to perfectly nail the price, something that had never been done and has never been done since, leaving everyone in the show shocked and sure that he had to have cheated. The fallout went two ways. One, it forever changed the way that The Price is Right is structured. Nice hadn't technically cheated. And so The Price is Right changed up its prizes and its pricing structure in an attempt to keep people from being able to do this exact thing. Number two, though, Terry Nice to this day, maintains that he did not get help from Slauson and simply guessed it on his own. <laughs> Doesn't matter that there's video footage. Doesn't matter that there's an entire documentary about this. Nice says he just got lucky. So Dave, as has uh, been established on this podcast, it's been quite a bit ago, but I am a fan of reality TV. There's several reality shows that I like to watch, but you are not. No, and it really bothers me that you do, because I think (laughs) so highly of you. No, I've never liked reality TV. In fact, it's interesting. I can remember when Survivor first came out, watching it with my family and thinking, this is insane. Because Survivor was like the first reality show. Yeah, Survivor's great. It's still good. It's still, okay. All right, yeah. (laughs) Well, I think most people watch reality TV as sort of a comfort. You know, it's not necessarily like they're 
trying to watch like a documentary and learn something new. You know, it's okay to just watch TV just uh, for fun, I guess, sometimes. To each their own, man. But I think it's important to note, Dave, that reality shows never happen out of nowhere. I think ones that catch on and become popular really can tell you a lot about the culture that watches them. And I got particularly interested in a reality show out of Scotland that was made in 2016 that really dissolved into one of reality TV's most wild disasters. The show was called Eden, and it began with 23 strangers who were moved to a remote Scottish estate and were tasked with building an entire society from scratch. They were expected to take care of livestock and crops, to determine laws, and to assign roles within the society. And I think you have to understand the timing here, too. Britain was in this really tense moment in its history and was contemplating leaving the European Union. The financial crash was still sort of looming overall. And then a show drops that was advertised with this tagline. No poverty, no recessions, no bankers' bonuses, no slavery, no cyberbullying. What if we could start again? And Dave, to me, there's sort of a connection here, right? The fears of the society at the time sort of led to the development of this show that addressed them in kind of a way. Around 2,000 people originally applied to be on the show, from which the 23 cast members were chosen. The show was billed as sort of a social experiment, but issues started cropping up pretty early on. In September of 2016, six months into filming, Scottish newspapers began reporting that eight of the original 23 contestants had left the show. The Scottish newspaper, The Press and Journal, reported that hunger, tiredness, and boredom were the driving factors for this, but that there were also instances of romantic jealousy among the contestants and just a general hatred of one another. In fact, some participants have even revealed that the divide between male and female contestants became so severe that there were talks of starving out certain people who (laughs) happened to all be women. So starving out as in like hiding food from them? Yeah, like not giving them withholding food punishment Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> a former cast member named steven described it as people destroying each other and the worst sides of people being magnified to ridiculous proportions another cast member named caroline described it as a real life lord of the flies bullying became more prevalent and infighting over rations and roles within the community bubbled over rumors around the show range from physical fights among contestants to frequent mental breakdowns that included some women shaving their heads britney spears style and to some (laughs) cast members actually sneaking out of eden into a nearby town to drink beer and eat pizza The first episode aired in July of 2016, and while this episode of the series had a viewership of 1.7 million, that plummeted to 800,000 in just one month. The show broadcasts three more episodes before it was finally canceled. The issue here, though, Dave, is that when it was time to reintegrate into society one year after it began, those that had toiled away for months in Eden found out for the first time that the reality show had been canceled. While producers had abandoned the show, the remaining cast members continued living in Eden for months afterwards, seemingly unaware that the show had been abandoned by the network. In fact, Dave, the remaining cast members lived in Eden until March of 2017 before they reemerged into society, which was nearly seven months after the show (laughs) had aired its last episode. 
the network that aired the program, Channel 4, did put out a series later that year that attempted to somewhat wrap up the drama called Eden Paradise Lost that kind of did the best it could, but still so many questions remained over the drama that caused the split and then why no one really made it a priority to, I don't know, tell anyone that the show had been canceled. NPR's Morning Edition asked, if a person lives in the forest and is not on TV, does it make a sound? (laughs) And Dave, the problem here for the contestants is sort of what you'd expect. The press has sort of constructed this narrative around Eden about what it was and what it wasn't. And those who actually participated feel as though the narratives have been taken out of their hands. Some cast members have even come out in the years since to try to state that the us not knowing it was canceled narrative has been kind of overblown by the press. And the remaining cast members feel to some degree traumatized by the situation and don't really want to talk about it at all. After watching the follow-up special, Rachel Butterworth, a participant on the show, told The New Yorker, it was bringing back feelings from a year ago, which I have been working to get over. They didn't know what it was like to be in there. It still haunts us. It is not something that just ends as soon as you climb over the fence. And overall, Dave, while this is probably reality TV's biggest disaster, it is definitely a case study on society, reality TV, and the narratives we craft around events in the months afterwards. A lot of reality TV shows, like especially Survivor, and this actually might have been that first season of Survivor that this happened. It's, you know, there's you're trying to win something. So, like, even The Bachelor and Bachelorette, which you like, sure, whatever, you want to, maybe you want to actually marry him, but you want to win the show. That's the point. And so, is there anyone better than the guy that won Survivor? His name was Richard Hatch, I'll never forget, who just started getting naked all the time. Like, <laughs> he, he knew it would make people, like, kind of uncomfortable, but it's because he was playing the game. Yeah, just like The Price is Right, man. Like, he hacked the system, and he won. It all played into him winning. Now, I think he also lost all his money, like tax evasion or something like that. But, man, what a... uh, (laughs) But what a run. What a run, huh? (laughs) And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Yeah, and you're also good at uh, Deal or No Deal, <laughs> which is a, a game of no skill. <laughs> I don't um, even know how to play Deal or No Deal. I've, n- I've never even watched that. There's no skill. You're like, you just uh, pick case a, 12, a case. I guess. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's nothing... <laughs> It's whatever.